welcome to CanCon, where you can get your Canadian content from Canadians conversing about cannibalism. And this week we are talking about perhaps the, to put it broadly, like nicest movie we've talked about so far, 1991's classic, F-G-T, as we <laughs> casually call it. We very casually call it FGT. That is totally a thing we do. Yes. Uh, we are talking about the film Fried Green Tomatoes today. Um, Zach, this was your... You had seen parts of it before? Uh, it was on VHS in my household. My mom was a big fan, so it was on a lot. I've seen bits and pieces, some of which I remember, some of which I didn't remember. Yeah, when we discussed... Um, when we were talking kind of while we were watching, one of the things that Zach said was, I thought that this was a movie for some reason about Kathy Bates getting the Whistle Stop Cafe running again, which is not what happened in That's this film. That's the plot of Corner Gas. I was thinking of the Ruby. <laughs> but I do remember parts of it, even to the point where uh, some of it I could like preempt. Like I was like, that's not a Bible, it's Moby Dick. Which I did not remember. Yeah. Like, at all. Yeah. Um, so there are some really fun things about this film that make it unique. There are some problematic portrayals of people of color that we're going to talk about. Um, we'll talk about the cannibalism, of course. We're going to talk about Kathy Bates' character, who's... I, I'm, I'm bad at character names, and all I can think of Evelyn. is... Evelyn! Evelyn! Um, who is just really lovely and awesome. Um, yeah, there's a ton of stuff to unpack here. So let's get started. Um, Zach, what are some of the things that make this film stand out from the other cannibal films that we have uh, got on the roster? This is a film about women. <laughs> it is a film about women. Women's relationships, friendships, like romantic interests or lack thereof, their the tension between women and men. These are like women's stories that we don't often get like in Hollywood movies. And we get a variety of them in this film. And women are allowed to be funny in this movie, which early 90s, it seems like if you draw a straight line from like this film in 1991 to Frances McDormand winning an Oscar for like uh, for Fargo in 95 or 96, I think it's 96. We're for like a very comedic role, like we're starting to get into the post I Love Lucy idea that like women in movies can be funny and not just on TV. And and can be funny without being an object of ridicule. Yeah, where it's not like a, a woman in a in a dress and like the streetcar drives into a puddle and soaks her and it's like that's funny. Or the 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 uh, Krusty the Clown's cliche about when the wealth, wealthy dowager shows up. It's time for fun. And then Homer's notes to himself are, kill the wealthy dowager. <laughs> yeah, this is not a movie where the women elicit laughs because we're... There are wealthy dowagers in this film. It's, it's funny that I pull out that example, but we don't... When they fall down the stairs, it's actually, like, horrific and violent. It's not slapstick. Yeah, it's also the gayest movie we have watched so far. I thought Toilet Green was going to be... No. The gayest movie, because I did not remember from having watched this film as a teenager, um, how queer it is. I was kind of blown away. Like, I know for fans of the show, you know, we're always like looking for like readings, you know, this is 
couple of woke jokes here. We're always looking for like readings involving race and class and gender and sexuality. I, I was watching this and I was just like, even more than like Thelma and Louise in some ways, which is contemporary to this, this is like a really explicitly romantic, I won't even say sexual, well, there's some of it's super sexual, like they, the way food is used to depict um, like sexual desire between Iggy and uh, Ruth um, without showing them like kissing, which the film does seem to be afraid of in a way that it's not afraid of like the intimacies of between women. I think probably the reason for that is that the film needed some kind of plausible deniability um, about the queerness, which is that you can say that it's about two very close friends if you really want to deny the queerness in it. Um, no one who's seen the film recently will believe you, yeah. but you you can that reading is available. Let's take a step back just in case there's some folks who maybe are going to watch it after they listen or who uh, watched it but a long time ago. What are the things that happen in this film, Zach? Why don't you tell me what the plot is? Yeah, it's kind of actually, I, if I had a just a criticism in terms of like practicalities, it's kind of like awkwardly framed from flashbacks to present day in a way that can be kind of jarring for maybe the first 20 minutes. But once you kind of get used to the use of flashback and like who are the central characters in the flashback scenes versus who is just kind of an auxiliary character that we're only going to see once. I have a thought about this. Okay. Should I interrupt you now? You can interrupt, yeah. But we should talk about the plot first. Okay, I was thinking about this when I couldn't sleep okay. last night. And I think that the film uses flashbacks because it is leaning into the visual language of a soap opera. It is definitely, I was thinking not about that. Um, I was thinking of probably using the word caricature, but soap opera is just as effective in that the performances are really great because they're walking the line that the script is walking where it's like, especially not even especially actually, I would say that the present day scenes are as equally have like an otherworldly romanticized quality to them as the flashback scenes, which is usually not the case. Usually it's like the flashback is works with a lot of archetypes and the present day is more like, Oh, dreary, you know, uh, drab reality, materialist reality. Yeah. And this, they're both kind of like goofy alternately or like Gothic alternately, maybe not so much Gothic in the present day. But yeah, it's like it's a weird one where the present day feels like it's being unreliably narrated simultaneously with the unreliably narrated flashbacks. It does, yeah, absolutely. So we get these flashbacks. Flashbacks. We have Evelyn Kathy Bates's character. Just, um, I love this character so 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 much. Um, I will try to contain my enthusiasm for her until we get to that to that point. But we get Kathy Bates. Playing this character, Evelyn, who accidentally meets an older woman who... There's a little bit of a complication that gets revealed at the end. We don't believe in spoilers here, so we will tell you. But she meets a woman who goes by Nina when she is with her husband visiting one of the husband's aunties who is just, like, violently hates Evelyn. The most slapstick is the character <laughs> of the aunt who we never see, who we only see 
uh, represented through objects being flung through from her hospital room. Yeah, from her. Well, it's a, a nursing room. Nursing she's room. In, a yeah. nursing home. Essentially, like the when uh, you know Sylvester's outside the fence and we hear the dog, but we don't see the dog. That's that's the the, the, the um, yeah the the Looney Tunes motif that is being evoked here. And it's a little bit like Hollywood is ageist, so they were like, you get one old lady character. Yeah, well, even, um, I mean, there's some really good, we talked about, like, the queer representation being kind of, like, eye-widening for the time, and given uh, the film, I don't think is remembered widely as, like, a queer classic. I mean, I think it will be in years to come. But it's also, like, there's not much, like, fat representation still in films, and Kathy Bates's character, like, explicitly is a fat person. Yeah, and there's, like, a little bit of a transformation scene that happens a little bit later. We can talk about that and unpack it. But the transformation is not explicitly, like, fatphobic. No, she. it's kind of, like, somewhere between, like, I'm going to have fun going to the gym, but it's not about, like, getting... It happens, like, simultaneously with her making a declaration about she's going to unilaterally decide that the standards of beauty are going to be much less oppressive in the United States than they are still yeah um celebrating her body i think is safe to yeah i don't think i'm being overly generous to the filmmakers by putting it that way i think it's supposed to be celebrating and caring for her body where she does like fun movement and and gets to feel empowered like she has her little trampoline workout yeah Um, and is inspired by the edgy protagonist from the flashbacks who's like explicitly kinetic and act physically domineering character in a lot of respects so Evelyn meets this character, Nina, and the whole plot of the film really is that she and Nina talk, and Nina tells her stories, and the stories are the flashbacks that are kind of more the main plot of the film than Evelyn's life, although Evelyn's story isn't meaningless either, so her, her story gets to have some color and texture to it, um, and through their relationship, Evelyn comes to appreciate and love herself um, more than she probably would have had she not met Nina. And then in the flashback story is where we get the cannibalism. So we get the story of uh, Itchy. Again, Itchy and Nina are... This is the spoiler. They are the same person. You will... As much as you won't believe that there wasn't an active queer reading of this film in 1991, at least a widespread one, you will be equally um, shocked that someone might not piece together that they are one and the same character. I believe it's Iggy with a DG. I think you're right. It is Iggy. I looked it up because I thought it was itchy, like itchy and scratchy. No, it's it's Iggy, which has to be short for something, but who? Ingenia. Something like that. Maybe. Um... But yes, and so it is in the flashback story that we get the cannibalism, where it's such a lovely story. So the opening, beginning story is one of tragic loss that Iggy's brother, and is is it the same person, is Ruth the same person that Buddy is like betrothed to? Yes, Buddy is betrothed to Ruth, and Buddy is Iggy's older brother who she idolizes, maybe wants to be a little bit. And he is the only person in the family who accepts her. We are using her 
she and her, her Iggy and Nina, because the film consistently uses she and her, but Iggy's characterization is absolutely leaves room for a trans, non-binary, a genderqueer reading. So again, we are using the pronouns that are used in the film because they are used very consistently and the film is pretty open about um, about Iggy's characterization. So she's rough and tumble. Kinetic is such a good word. That's part of it, too, is, like, because the film either doesn't or, like, veers away from an explicitly trans reading of Iggy, um, there's a very welcome, like, uh, cis but, like, tomboy reading that I think could be very useful and empowering to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. It might be that Iggy just really loves. So the opening sequence, which ends in the horrific death of Buddy, um, he gets hit by a train, which just seems like a real bad way to go. Um, In the opening sequence, there is a wedding that's happening, and Iggy's character has been made to wear a dress, and she climbs up in the treehouse, and she throws the dress and her little shoes and her stockings and is like nuts to this um and then we see her emerge triumphant in like a little a little boy's suit that's kind of our introduction to the character yeah and much like annie hall before her she will shock the world by wearing men's shirts and vests and big hats sometimes and she's got a very she grows up to have a very hip kind of uh almost like uh you know not even necessarily masculine fashion all the time, but just very, like, gender non-conforming, like, almost like an asexual kind of, like, where can we find ways to make both, like, conventional men's fashion and conventional women's fashion meet? Yeah, it, the, styli- the styling of that character really made me think of Winona Ryder's character in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Oh, that's a good one, too. Um, yeah. Which is maybe just how... Like, because they're both made in the 90s is maybe what that is. But Scout and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, to throw back to another Southern tomboy narrative, like, same kind of idea. Yes, same, same, yes, absolutely. Um, She's wild. She's just totally wild. And so... She's, she's, yeah, exuberant. her, Her mother calls her home one summer, and she calls buddies former betrothed, but he does not exist anymore. Of course, he's not on the way of the train. Um, on the way of the train. That is not how that, what that saying is. That's fine. He's pat, he's gone to the next, the next stage, the next dimension. Yeah. He is no longer with us. Um, <laughs> dead. Yeah. Uh, why is that funny? He's train track pizza. Train track pizza. Oh my goodness. So, Buddy's gone, but Iggy's mother calls her home and calls Ruth home and basically has this idea that Ruth will teach Iggy how to be a lady and sort of tame her. And what happens instead, Zach? The complete opposite. Iggy initially is kind of like, I think, has some tolerance for Ruth because like she sees Ruth as embodying something that she lost with buddy like because ruth and buddy had an intimacy that's how i read some of it um but very quickly once she kind of ruth is very insistent on hanging out with iggy and maybe learning what she may or may not learn from iggy even while kind of reluctantly or posing as reluctantly uh tolerant of iggy shenanigans which feels like sexual curiosity 
I think so. Like, there's a few... There's the scene where... Wait, let's finish yeah, summarizing so the plot. Yeah, so then what, what inevitably happens quite quickly and where the film really starts to get moving, in my opinion, is, uh, yeah, Iggy wins Ruth over and Ruth sees the fun in this wild, Iggy lifestyle. And uh, so they do like a Robin Hood kind of thing where they're on a boxcar that's in motion and they're throwing the food from the boxcar to a group of hungry, I guess they're like, like black working folk who are living in like a tent community kind of it's the people they are living by the side of the railway tracks and they are a group of people of mixed races yeah because we see the one old white face right yeah and we see lots of children which is part of what captures ruth's heart because ruth loves children ruth loves children and it's something that's conventional enough from in terms of her upbringing that she can relate to like Iggy might be wild, but her wildness is, like, to steal bread and give it to children. And then the thing kind of has a further twist when they jump from the moving box car and Iggy breaks or sprains her ankle. And Ruth is like, well, get on your feet. Like, we're going to walk to a doctor. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like they're both sort of, like, Iggy's sort of testing Ruth's metal, like M-E-T-T-L-E. Um, and And Ruth is sort of like, you know, like, to a certain degree, she's doing the kind of, like, well, I never... But, like, picking up the swing of things, and then still kind of, like, then surprising Iggy with her own challenge, like, well, I'm not gonna carry you, get up, we're gonna walk, like, you're so tough, wearing ties and suspenders and stuff. <laughs> and then, uh, from there, it's like, yeah, and then the, the cannibalism is that, unlike Iggy, who has no interest in settling down, because she probably lesbian or bi but well, she okay. does have an interest in because she uses the phrase i'm as settled as i ever want to be eventually yes um but ruth is quite still persuaded however sincerely or not of the idea of settling down with a husband and having a house well she's persuaded of the idea that she's a good southern woman who follows all the rules right because they have that conversation about um they've they've gone to the club and they've spent the night dancing and playing softball and eventually the last scene is they're in a river uh swimming and also playing poker and it's very intensely sexual yeah and they're laughing about how they are each other's opposite and ruth is so good and ruth says um it's like you go to i go to church like i'm supposed to and i cared for my father and i cared for i'll care for my mother um and i'll probably even marry the man that i'm supposed to um, and that's part of her, yeah, kind of being resigned to the role of women in the South at the time. And probably, um, like, clinging to Buddy's ghost to an extent where she she was so sure that they were going to have a romantic, domestic future together. And that was cut short, tragically. Yeah. And, and yeah, she really, both, both women, um, in their own way, one as a romantic interest and one as a sibling, both really, really love buddy really deeply love him and are both kind of chasing his ghost because Iggy's like you know what we would conventionally call boyish adventures and lifestyle is kind of chasing after a, a friendship she had with her brother I even I even think the film really draws our attention to the way that they like are embodied as being really similar so in the opening scene when buddy is kind of running very handsomely and boyishly 
uh, up to the house for the wedding, we see him, like, swing on a rope. Mm. And it's, like, so graceful and um, and swift. And I think that the way that Iggy moves throughout the film after, like, as an adult is, like, very much... Um, is very much like a very similar embodiment. Um, that same kind of movement. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I would say there are a few Swiftian movements Swiftian. in this. Yeah. This is very Southern film. And so what happens eventually is Iggy goes off to be her wild self and Ruth goes off to settle down. And a few years later, Ruth decides to come pay, uh, or Iggy decides to come pay Ruth a visit, and she recognizes that Ruth is, she meets Ruth's husband. She doesn't meet Ruth's husband. They never get introduced. She sees Ruth has a black eye. We quickly learn that Ruth's husband is like an abusive creep, drunkard, clansman, we later learn. And so eventually she convinces Ruth to escape the situation with her, um, and they run away together. With Ruth's baby with, is well, key. She's pregnant. But She's yes. Pre- yes. Yeah. And they run away together and they start up this business, which is the Whistle Stop Cafe. Um, that they, not the Ruby. Not the Ruby. Not a different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so, it's so funny to me that you would mix up fried green tomatoes and corner gas. It's probably easier to mix it up with Golden Girls. I feel like that has a lot of the same kind of like... <laughs> Women getting into trouble and yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, being playful, living their own authentic lives. Yeah. Um, and so Ruth and Iggy settle down together. They are very clearly co-parenting the little boy who um, Ruth names Buddy. Although the baby, the child is very much referred to as being Ruth's, which is very interesting for... Except that um, in the flashback, in the present day scenes, Nina talks about having a son named Albert who passed, which I kind of, in hindsight, read, especially once they confirm that she is Iggy. I mean, unless the film and Nina are playing tricks on us. Oh. So Albert would probably be a pseudonym for, was it Buddy Jr.? It's, yeah. Yeah. Can you look that up? If that's supposed to be. Because I read, I read that totally pun, uh, um, excuse my pun, totally straight as like in the time after because our our story our we end that story after Ruth's death and then we don't really revisit Iggy um except in the present. And so I had read that as um as Iggy having settled down and having a child a little bit later what does your google just the first thing that comes up when you type in fried green tomatoes is you get is the old lady itchy <laughs> how can anyone watch this movie and not know well like i said unless it's supposed to be very existential and like i guess like you know, like i could see it being like a thing where it's like does it really matter if she is or not it just matters that that's how nina because all of the story we get is through nina's perspective so yeah. it could all be fabricated and she could just like essentially be Iggy in that she's the the voice of the story and so you know what I mean? Like if she wants to be Iggy she can be. Yeah, I I as someone who um some of my job is teaching people how to more deeply and thoroughly read texts. It's mm-hmm. just funny to me because I think I feel like you have to work harder to get to a reading where they're not the same person. 
No, I think it's less because then oh. it's just she made it all up. Oh so any God. of it could be. Do you know what I mean? Like, like she's just crazy. Not crazy. She's just a storyteller. She's a, a myth maker. Because, oh. like, and then they have the grave at the end is the only, but you could even read that as by that point, Kathy Bates is so, Evelyn's so wrapped up in the story, then it could mean, she could mean anything. Yeah, and we could probably find a way to read that as, like, not real, that, like, yeah, um, that it is, in fact, Nina who's died in that last sequence, and what happens after is Evelyn supplying the, the ending that she wishes she had, she could have. Um, or you can even read it that when Nina dies, and then we find, I'm doing scare quotes, folks, and then we find out that she's actually not dead and Evelyn was just misinformed, you could read that as, like, at that point in the film, Nina's actually dead and Evelyn is carrying on her spirit by, like, making up her own stories for Nina's still alive and is A beautiful return to yeah. the Whistle Stop Cafe. Yeah, that's... Um, Very meta, the whole movie as it is anyway. Yes. So what happens is eventually the awful husband attacks Ruth and tries to steal the baby and someone murders him. And the question of who murders him doesn't get resolved until the end of the film. And that's uh, toward the end of the film. And that's okay. This is where the cannibalism features in. So um, Iggy says to Big George? Big George, yeah. Yeah, to Big George, it's hog boiling time, and this is the closest um, the closest we get to sort of knowing for sure that, and then we get the, the camera shows us, like, up close footage of the big pot bubbling and... This is something I wanted to broach, is because when I already knew, I mean, the whole reason we're watching is because I knew the husband gets cooked and eaten, but when it's kind of like, it feels like it gets revealed right after he dies and then later in the toward the end of the film it's more expressly discussed about whether or not he was actually boiled and eaten and i'm not sure watching it now knowing what i know if we're supposed to infer right from the initial shot of the meat being prepared like if we're just supposed to read that as we already know he has been cooked and eaten or at least like that that's the possibility or if that's meant to be more of, like, a subtle tease than I interpreted it as, like... I read it as being very direct, but I think it's one of the things that's, like, really hard to, like... Oh, I don't know. Like, if you're someone who has watched this movie and didn't know that there was cannibalism in it, get at us. Send us yeah. an email and let us know what you thought about the, that. If you knew he was eaten the whole time or if it didn't occur to you until ten minutes before the credits... Also, just about the brother. Yeah. yeah. No one online is asking this question, so we also have some of our own scholarship to pursue, apparently. <laughs> yeah, if the son slash brother is, yeah. If Buddy Jr. and Albert are the same. If they're the same. Yeah. Um, there's a trial. There's a guy from Georgia who's a police officer who's super dedicated to, I think, just taking down masculine women. Like, he's very obsessed with convicting Iggy of murder, um, there is a trial, they are acquitted, um, and then Ruth gets cancer and passes away very quickly. So if you were someone who was looking for a nice queer romance that doesn't follow the edict of bury your gaze, this is unfortunately not one of those. So we do get a queer character who um, has a tragic ending, does not live out to see the end of the film, um, 
there's a lot of really, really beautiful intimacy before that. Again, I really love this film. I think there's lots of good in it. Um, I don't like that that is one of our trends in depicting queer intimacies and queer characters for so long. So if you are a queer reader, you are probably aware of this history um, and don't need me to explain it to you. But if you are not a queer reader, you may not be aware of the history of representation of queer folks where um, through both kind of tacit agreement on the parts of storytellers and also at different periods of time, censorship requirements, any depictions of um, queer love and queer intimacy usually result in one person, one part of the intimacy being disappeared from the narrative, whether it's through death or other forms of disappearance. So it is one of the um, features of queer storytelling historically that is um, kind of a bummer. So I think that's important to to lay out about this story. Yeah, further caveat too is just it's like the canon of uh, kind of like landmark feminist American films in the 20th century. Like Beaches ends with one of the women dying of cancer. Uh, Terms of Endearment ends with a death from cancer. Thelma and Louise ends with them like suicide mission off the cliff. Like that one at least there's a little more agency in the passing. But it feels like we have a lot of like these really great like stories about women, even though they're often not made by women, but like have these really strong performances and and uh, you know nuances to them that we don't typically get in Hollywood films, and they all usually the result is like also life is sad and you're gonna die. I wonder, it's it's kind of funny to me when you like, think about that canon altogether and how beloved those films are, um, and how beloved, I think, Fred Green Tomatoes is a pretty well-loved Yeah, I think of, of it as being part of that. I've never seen Joy Luck Club, but I see it get mentioned in that same kind of... Yeah. Oh, that's more about the immigrant experience from what I understand. But, but still about women and women's relationships mm-hmm. are at the center, for sure. Um, it makes me, like kind of bananas how shocked everyone was when um frozen did so well because people were like like the same it's it just it's weird to me that we didn't already know that like we love stories where women get to have like enduring relationships with one another and love each other whether that's romantic love or deep friendship love um yeah that we were we got real surprised about that when Frozen came out again, and I think that's not. I don't think it's going. To, I saw an interview with um, the great. Um, yeah, there, I saw an interview with Ellen Burstyn from I don't know twenty years ago maybe, and she would they were asking her about, you know, you've been in all these really important roles for women, and and asking her about how she feels about like the progress in Hollywood, and she very astutely. <laughs> kind of shoots back at the interviewer and it's just like, well, there used to be like all kinds of movies in like the seventies when we had like the big boom about realism where it was like people wanted to tell women's stories and like have women who had like performances where there was a lot to do. And she's like, and now like, you know, I mostly played mothers and increasingly grandmothers and you know, the parts get richer, but you have to wait five or 10 years for the really good ones. And it's like, it seems like that's carried over, you know, consistently in the last few decades where 
I mean, you could talk a lot about just Hollywood film being so spread thin now between different corporate franchises and, you know, whether it's Marvel and Disney and Star Wars and stuff like that. But yeah, it seems like for we've gotten worse and not better at making room for different people's stories, despite this kind of like narrative of like inclusion in Hollywood. Yeah, I think that's, I think part of, of what is tricky about that um, is that Hollywood is maybe quicker to embrace the, the idea of inclusion rather than inclusion itself. Um, and so, yeah, like, we, we're getting a lot of, like, really thin, I think, um, attempts at maybe, um, it, it's just like, it's, uh, what am I trying to say? I don't know. Let's come back to it. Yeah, I, was, I will this. just quickly say, I, think, I guess the other caveat would be that a lot of the scale, like the the medium scale productions that would have still been Hollywood films in the seventies, for instance, are now like Netflix, Netflix miniseries. So that's kind of more where you get stuff like girls or Fleabag or whatever. Um, as opposed to like Hollywood, which like is, yeah, mostly big franchise blockbusters anyway, like regardless of, uh, content. Sure. And we're we getting like more just like mini seasons that are kind of like long movies that are the my brain has supplied Russian doll, which is mm-hmm. um there are not very well no, there I was gonna say there are not very many relationships between women in that in that text, but that's not true. There are absolutely. Um let's talk about what happens to Evelyn in the contemporary day version of the story. So the parallel line, so Evelyn learns the stories that we have just kind of described to you um, in her visits with Nina. And what else happens to her, Zach? She is struggling in her marriage. It's uh, been very, uh, you know, certainly desexualized, but also kind of de-romanticized, de-intimacized, intimacied. And uh, talking to Nina and learning about Iggy and Ruth inspires her, not just to, like, try to have a more rewarding marriage or leave the marriage, God forbid, if uh, her husband can't get with the program, but also to embrace feminism, to take some assertiveness training courses, to stand up for herself, to go back to work because she hasn't been working. Yeah, she, but going back to work is very, it's very funny to me. So what she does for work is she starts selling Mary Kay. Yeah. Which is like. That's work. It it is work. Um, it's MLM, right? It's uh, yeah, it's MLM. But like, I think in the early '90s, it still had very much kind of like Avon or Tupperware. Um, these were like kinds of jobs that gave women a new sense of oh, cat. Our cat is drinking out of a mug of drinking water that we were hoping to reserve. We were hoping to I poured myself a glass of water and the cat is it's his now. Thanks, buddy. He's yeah. Sweet. He is sweet. Okay, thank you. Um yeah, so we get like Avon, Tupperware, Mary Kay, um, the kinds of are the kinds of jobs that like give women of a certain class and a certain race, I think also, is it safe to say 
um, a certain feeling of empowerment and agency that was lacking in their lives. Like, so we can be critical of them as like multi-level marketing type schemes for sure, for sure. But I think the presence of Mary Kay, um, sort of distinctly and definitively like as a brand in this film is kind of really pulling on kind of earlier associations, um, earlier associations with this kind of work, which is like, you can do it on the side and you can do it while being a mom, or you can do it, uh, without disrupting whatever your other routines are. And it's, um, also a type of work that is predominantly about like catering to the needs and desires of women and so we could talk about a whole like the beauty industry is it for women is it for men um but I'm I'm thinking that's the association that's kind of being pulled on on here yeah I think actually I would not be surprised to find out that uh Diane Weiss character in Edward Scissorhands was uh Tim Burton kind of lifting from this film uh, and making her the Avon lady in the neighborhood and having the same kind of, like a certain defiance and a certain headstrongness that Evelyn from Fried Green Tomatoes has. And like the two films come out very close together. So it's interesting just whether or not it was a direct inspiration or not. Um, it's interesting to see that that was sort of like these ideas were in the air that we can have. Uh, I mean, cause that's a, a pretty uh, in, you know, in a, again, in a time where there's not a whole lot of great roles for older women, um, that was that's like a pretty prominent role for Diane Weist in that movie as the mother in Edward Scissorhands and as the Avon, the very dedicated Avon lady. Yeah, the oh, I'm just like hearing the like ding dong. It's a, it's Avon calling. Is that the Avon calling? Yeah, yeah. Uh, very well branded response, but yeah, her. Evelyn's transformation is, it's not, how do I say this? It's, it's, it's really lovely, I think, because it's not super overstated. So even though, like, she does very specifically starts, like, selling Mary Kay, like, that's, like, a very specific thing, um, the kinds of, the, the piece of, the piece of the thing that is transformative is that she wants to care for herself. She wants to think about her own needs and desires. She wants to invest in herself and in her very close friendship with Nina. Um, and part of the way that that in investment kind of shakes out is she decides that she, oh my goodness, hi, welcome to the podcast, Hayes. <laughs> cat's being bad. Her cat's, well, he's being a cat. Yeah, now um, he's settling down. Oh, buddy. Big yawn. yawn. <laughs> um, okay, let's come... Well, this is the most ADHD episode where we're not just, like, making connections, but we're both distracted. It's That's good. okay. We just got the low battery warning, so we got to wrap it up in five or ten minutes, I think. So. That's not... What? Wasn't that what popped up? No, that's oh, not what popped up. Okay, we can keep going. <laughs> um, and we're plugged in. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, so what's beautiful about her transformation is that it isn't about, you know, lose this much weight, fit this size of dress, I'm going to do my makeup like this, I'm going to look that particular way. It's about, like, being invested in her own life and, again, investing in her friendship with Nina. The way that that shows up is this really beautiful kind of networks of care thing. She's like, my friend is going to die, basically, 
and she deserves to be somewhere more comfortable and more like a home and to be cared for um, in her final stage of life. Um, and I want to care for her because she's my friend. So that, that unfolds for me just really naturally as a part of the transformation where that kind of care is about caring for the version of herself that she will be someday, right? Investing in networks of care um, because they do matter. And that it's this kind of reinvigoration of the play, this, some, some ideas about the place of women in the world, perhaps, that again are not overstated, you should be in the home, you should have a job, you should be a mother, you shouldn't be a mother. They don't come with like a really firm set of rules, but it's more like when you love someone and care about someone, that is a really beautiful expression of like humanness and aliveness and it's valuable and it's, yeah, we can celebrate it. Yeah. And her, you know, her broaching with her husband, the idea of Nina coming to live with them is met with resistance and we get to see uh, Evelyn fight for it. And it, to me, it felt again, speaking of like the meta-ness of the film, it felt like a meta moment where she's also arguing for like, these relationships and friendships between women, whether they're romantic or sexual or just friendships or familial are important and worth fighting for. And we just gave you a movie with two really strong ones with uh, Iggy and Ruth and with Evelyn and Nina. And it's like, you know, and it comes at toward the end of the movie. It's like a nice chance to reflect back on what we've been watching and to, to see how, uh, you know, how what Evelyn's fighting for is like the film itself is like the fruit of the the struggle. Yeah, and I think that in both storylines we get these really important challenges to patriarchy, like very, very specifically to patriarchy. So in um the storylines that in the past with Itchy and Ruth, it's like I don't know how much more like down with patriarchy you can be yeah. than like kill the patriarch and it's not your baby actually. Um, yeah. Which is like, like so the ideas of patriarchy, like the, the way that women get controlled in those systems. One of them is very distinctly about lineage, right? That women are, um, operate as sort of a parentheses through which the man's lineage is like birthed literally through children and those children are brought up into adulthood through the care of again like that parenthetical care that doesn't seem to matter in in that patriarchal system um but in the in the contemporary storyline there's this other challenge to patriarchy also so um, we don't know what's going to happen with her and her husband we kind of know that she's sort of given up on the relationship yeah, she's very resigned. Like, if their sex life resumes, it kind of feels like that would be, like, a bonus. But it seems like she has quietly given up the idea that her husband's going to suddenly understand, like, the new Evelyn, who is sometimes referred to as Tuwanda, which was Iggy's nickname for herself when she's in warrior woman mode. Yeah, um, and she stopped caring about getting her husband's attention. It's very funny because, like, he starts paying attention to her. Um, it's on a tie for dinner, Mr. He, Sexy Man. He's coming home with flowers for her every day. Like, the right flowers, too. It's not like there's no effort involved. And she is least. suddenly, like, not noticing. 
Um, and it's very different from, like, his not noticing had, like, clearly been distraction, right? Like, Baseball. Baseball, football, bowling. Bowling, hockey. She doesn't say wrestling, which would make more sense than hockey for a guy living in the South, but whatever. I think ho- I do think hockey is thrown in there as, like, an absurd bowling and hockey. Yeah, yeah that's true. Hockey would have been, like, the wrestling. Yeah, okay. That's yeah, cool. or, like, the absurd. Like, you come home, you take your plate, you take a beer, you can't even really, like, you don't look me in the eye even, and you go and you sit and you distract yourself with all these sports and it's um the film does a really nice job by the end of making us realize that like that's bad for her but it's bad for him also he doesn't seem happy yeah he is not fulfilled by that um and she ends up doing all the you know quote-unquote men's work she's bashing down walls with a sledgehammer and rebuilding them and you're kind of like oh i see so it's like the gender roles are inverting i'm like they're not inverting like he's sitting around with a beer watching tv like, he wasn't, you know, the only people we see doing construction and heavy lifting is, like, Iggy and uh, Evelyn, you know? Well, yeah. and Big George, but... Well, and I, I wanted to talk about the renovations that she does in the house, because it's part of the challenge to the patriarchal order, right? Which mm-hmm. is, they have this home, um, so the idea of the nuclear family is very much a tool of capitalism and a tool of patriarchy. It's the, one of the ways that like the norms of the lineage and like the roles of people of various genders within society get sort of cemented is you start with this idea of the nuclear family, um, which is not a naturally occurring form. And it's actually a very recent form it is not how humans, by and large, through most of history, have organized ourselves. Which is not to say that humans have not organized themselves ourselves into families and communities and so on. Just that they've um, looked a little different and have been based on things other than only blood relationships. Um, which is part of, yeah, the, the challenge that she poses when she first she's breaking down a wall because their son Kyle hasn't lived with them. Um, we never meet Kyle. Kyle's only an idea. He's gone off, um, to school, presumably. And presumably this is when she starts to realize that there's other emptinesses in her life. And she starts working on, um, the marriage instead of on reconnecting with herself, which is what Nina helps her to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she is first, she is tearing down the wall that separates out the son's room because he's gone and, we're gonna, I need some light in here, she says, right? So she's rebuilding the home. She's no longer holding the space for the child that sort of had been the grounding of her life, we're going to presume, in the history, right? That now the the grounding of her life is in her husband, and that's dissatisfying. That's where we start the film. Um, But at the end, she's building the wall back up because she wants, uh, A.G. almost said she wants Nina, um to come and live with them. And that's, again, another direct challenge to that idea of, like, the nuclear home as the the linchpin of, like, the patriarchal system. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I like the idea of her both building and tearing down walls because now suddenly she's deciding how much of herself is visible or not visible. Like, she's her autonomy of the new Evelyn, the Tuanda. Like, she's the sole, uh, you know, decide, decision maker of those things. Yeah, and it, it, it also tells us that 
the transformation that she experiences is generative and not just destructive. Yes, that's a good point, too. Also, it's interesting when you bring up about Kyle, the son, Evelyn's absent son leaving. Both um, Iggy and Ruth's, as well as Evelyn's, like, awakenings happen with either the death or the absence of a young man who presumably a lot of, like, promise for the future was invested in, and that Mm. forces kind of a realization of how much the patriarchy has predetermined the future of these women as being dependent on the actions of, you know, the young men that will grow with them. Yeah, and and how much patriarchal systems have just required that women kind of be passive and allow their life stories to be narrated by the whims and excitements of the men that ground their lives. Yes. So in the absence of those men in this film, a matriarchal or just non-gendered system can arise. Yeah. And and I think it's like very deliberately thinking about those things. Like I think in making Nina a storyteller who literally narrates um, her own life to Evelyn, and like as like we could boil the plot of this film down to much like they boiled the body of the dead husband. Ah. Uh, oh my goodness, buddy! Please, friend. Okay, um, we could boil the plot of this film really um, in as much as as just like the the body of the dead husband. Um, <laughs> We could boil it down to one woman tells another woman stories about her own life, and it is transformative. Yeah. Actually, the least interesting stuff about the movie is probably the cannibalism. <laughs> so that's why we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about it. Yeah, we should talk about the depictions of people of color and explicitly or specifically black people in this film. Yeah. Because um, we want to acknowledge that it is not a perfect film. It doesn't, as much as we um, enjoy it and recommend it, that its depictions of people of color are... Weird. They're weird. We want to talk about the places that they fail. Um, I, I think the film was trying to do something a little bit complicated, and maybe, um, maybe some of the filmmakers... I think there are some assumptions being made, I guess, on the part of the filmmakers about what it means to be marginalized and to have or to not have power relatively in a system. But why don't you get us started? Yeah, I mean, just the two... There's three main characters of color. There's Big George, there's Sipsy, and then Sipsy's daughter, who I think is nameless. Yeah, I don't... We do not get a... Which is already... Bad. It's already bad, right? So we have a film... That has characters who are never on screen. Two characters who are never on screen who get names, and then a black. Oh, child. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah with who no name. Is on screen. Who does not get a name? They're all very much like magical Negro characters. Like they kind of show up when they need to, and they are unfailingly noble and quiet. Um, pillars of strength. And they, yeah, they show up to solve problems and they show up to solve problems often through violence or the threat of violence. So when Itchy first goes to try to convince Ruth to leave, or she does convince Ruth to leave her husband, they're 
stealing her away when the husband um, comes home unexpectedly and quite literally, like, picks her up over his shoulder and tries to carry her upstairs. And there's Big George's there. And, the weirdest scene. Yeah, also, like, an unnamed white farmhand who says... Who has glasses, so, you know, he's not too mean. Yeah. He's kind of nerdy. He's nerdy. Um, but he says, Big George pulls out a knife and he says, don't do that. You might upset Big George and he's crazy. Who knows what he'll do. Um, and it turns out that the person who murders the husband is Sipsy and she murders him, um, in self-defense after he has. Hit her with the muzzle of his shotgun or something. Yeah. It's a really, a, a very, um, he's very violent towards her. The... Uh, it's it's so hard. I think the camera is trying to show us injustice, right? I think that that's... Yeah, it's it's well-meaning. Like, I just... It's, it's also, like, Sipsy and Big George, also their sole existence seems to just be as, like, caretakers for their benevolent white benefactors. Like, their big boon from emancipation was to like, you know, continue to serve white folk, but like good white folk. And it's, it's totally unstated, unnarrativized, but it seems that I'm talking about like, yeah, some of, something that's really problematic in the film, what I think the film was trying to do, but I don't, I don't like, it doesn't succeed. I want to be really upfront with that, that, um, but I do not think it succeeds. So, they, Sipsy and Big George, are both laboring for Itchy's family, who are very wealthy, and it's totally unstated and unnarrativized why they would choose to continue sort of following Itchy around after she, like, no longer leaves her parents' home, but the Whistle Stop Cafe, which it's unclear if this is even in the same, like, presumably... It's, like, in the town, and Itchy's parents' home is sort of on the edge or outside of the town. That's not... We don't get a really good, clear sense of that geography. Um, But Sipsy and Big George just also follow Itchy and Ruth around and are working at and kind of around the Whistle Stop Cafe. Sipsy seems to be working as a domestic laborer for Ruth and Itchy, which, to me narratively makes very little sense because Ruth and Itchy live in this very, very humble, small living situation. So my understanding of the situation is that they're running this cafe and they're making enough to pay a few people, but they're not, they're not bringing home the bank. Well, it's also like when Ruth passes, it's like the same, the kind of like the continuous white stereotype of the uh like like black people are more in touch with like the 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 spiritual world because sipsy's suddenly like not just a grief counselor but also like consoling iggy that like this was ruth's time like she wanted to go she was ready to go it it feels very um like kind of the wrong kind of romanticization kind of like the the jazz man who's like just feeling the music yeah um yeah, so we get these these two black characters who are just real happy to be around 
the arrangement between them is very unclear. Yeah, I don't even know if they're... Is that their child, or is Big George, like, Sipsy's brother? It's, like, really hard to tell, because they're very underdeveloped as characters. And unsexualized. Yes. And so, I'm going to talk about what I think the film is trying to do. One of the ways the film might have been more successful at kind of communicating injustice and also solidarity among various kinds of others, people who are othered in the society, it could have been more successful if we had had any character development. Like, it's such a character-driven film. Um, Smokey, the alcoholic, is a great character. We get enough of him that he feels better fleshed out than Big George, who has more screen time, probably. Yeah, with Smokey, we, like, understand his motivations much more clearly. Like, so his actions, he doesn't take a lot of actions, but, like, they make a lot of sense when, like, he decides to leave at one point and he decides to come back and that mm-hmm. um, there is a logic to that that doesn't just seem to be that he has no else to go or no desire to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, That's so, a good point. Yeah, right? Thank you. <laughs> um. So I think what the film is trying to do, because in the court case, Itchy refuses to let Big George take the heat because she knows that there is no way that a white jury will um, will find him not guilty. She refuses... Um, or she insists on standing trial for a crime that at the time we don't know if she did or did does like at the time that we see the court case we don't know who the murderer actually is we just know that itchy is insistent that she is the person essentially with the most privilege with the greatest possibility of being found not guilty and insists on standing in that privilege in order to save these other characters, which is, like, by itself, I think is not a bad message, like, at all. Um, Nice enough. Right? And, like, there's this whole... This is... This is... I'm I'm leading up to the thing. So I think what the film is trying to show us is that there is such a deep bond or a deep understanding of what it means to be othered between all of these characters because Itchy and Ruth are queer and understand that they are sort of being put on trial as queer women. Like, that subtext Mm -hmm. is really there. Um, Part of the thing is, like, well, it was his babies, and we didn't see him, and what's who is this person to you? And um, when we were watching it, I had this... um, realization that's like oh being gay is a crime also like they're on trial for murder and they're really also on trial for being two women with a baby who live together who can't explain in terms that the court will accept the nature of their relationship yes um and that part of the film works beautifully yeah it's lovely yeah it's powerful. Yeah. The message is clear. There is very direct tension about that. Like the tension about like having to name or narrate their relationship in this room full of like white dudes who have the power of the law behind them. I think it's beautifully put together. I think the film is trying to extend what an idea that 
when you are othered, you have a bond or a deep understanding or deep solidarity with other folks who are othered inherently. And that somehow makes this act not a white savior narrative act, but like a true act of solidarity, which what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's also, you, you can see the, the moving parts and the work is there. It's, it's hard to be too critical of it when like, you know, 30 years later, we have uh, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri winning, you know, multiple Oscars. And it's explicitly a film about white characters that makes passing mention of the completely undeveloped, not even underdeveloped, like undeveloped black characters in this town in Missouri that's supposedly rife with racism. But all we ever see is like the white on white violence. So it's like, we didn't, Hollywood did not learn any lessons from this kind of thing. It's like, if anything, it's perpetually made them worse. Um, and, you know, this movie has so much heart and is very, like, humble in its intentions, I think. Yeah. That it, it not to say that that's enough, like, good intentions. What's the, the path to hell is paved in good intentions is the expression. That is the cliche. But this is not, you're, this is not the path to hell. This is like the path to to warmth and some real, you know, attempts at empathy. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, it's, it's worth, it's certainly worth talking about the ways it's trying and it's essential to be aware of the ways in which it, it is neglectful and or fails. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, we can also look at the world today with so much anti-trans rhetoric, for example, Mm -hmm. and we can notice that, like, actually being othered does not inherently just by itself give you empathy and place you in solidarity with other people who are othered. And we know this, I mean, we've known this because of histories of, um like, racism among queer people and racism, like, racist positions held by women who are also, like, in a minority position. Um, We know this because right now there are queer people who support anti-trans rhetoric, and that's really awful and, to me, just, like, disgusting and horrendous. We have billionaires like Dave Chappelle entertaining crowds by saying that, you know, in order for anti-Black racism to fade, we have to buckle down on our transphobia and like persuading people of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the main failing in this film is like the idea that when you have privilege and you can recognize it and see it, you should use that privilege to like for good. Um, and you should walk in your privilege and embody your privilege in a way that allows people with less privilege than you to live full authentic lives Um, that being in solidarity can mean, like, putting yourself at risk to help someone else. It can, it should also mean, like, knowing your friend's daughter's name, right? Like, it should also mean understanding and believing in, in, um, other marginalized people as people, which is part of what this film fails to do. Yeah. You almost wish it didn't try, I guess, in that sense. Yeah. It would be easier to talk about. But you know what? If there was no black people in this film about the Sayyid, yeah, it would be worse. It would be much worse, actually. Yes. Um, but 
Yeah, we will. We wish it tried a little, little more, maybe. Yeah, we wish it. Yeah, it's we, Canada Day also, so we're all kind of uptight and thinking about representation and white privilege and yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we will do in our show notes is I'm going to put a map to a website that. Um, has a bunch of information so you can put in like the city that you live and understand which indigenous people groups um to which indigenous people groups that land rightly belongs and has historically belonged and learn some things about um yeah about that history it's really important stuff to know um if you are settlers like we are we really encourage you to um, if you don't know about histories of colonization in or in Canada, as the title of the podcast suggests, we really encourage you to learn some things about histories of colonization, to educate yourself, to, um, yeah, do some learning if you don't know it. It's for the, the place we can start. Love of God, don't wear red and white and set off fireworks on July 1st weekend, ever. That will be advice for next year, because this will not come yeah, out. Yeah, I was going to say, you won't hear this until the time after the crime but yeah Um, I want to turn to one more cheerful note about the film um which is just before we uh sign off which is so we have this transformation part of what I love about Evelyn's character transformation and and this probably would read differently to someone who is more knowledgeable about fashion than I am um, and probably would read really, really differently in, like, in the 90s when a fashionable sweater would be, like, more clearly fashionable or an unfashionable sweater, like, more clearly unfashionable than, like, the wardrobe selections are with this, like, passing of time. <coughs> um, but we get this, like, new attention to her physical appearance, and she does things like straighten her hair was the one where I was like, oh, she's, she's got a physical transformation too. And I bet her clothes are supposed to be like more, like they're probably, if you're savvy, more fashionable, but I, yeah, I, but I love every single thing she wears all the way through. Like every outfit is colorful. It's bright. It's fun. Yeah. I want to also add an addendum to that because I almost bit my tongue earlier and I'm sure someone will listen to this and catch it. When I referred to uh, Kathy Bates' Evelyn character in this film and Diane Weiss' Avon mom character in Edward Scissorhands as roles for older women, I am fully aware that both of those actors were probably in their late 30s, early 40s when they were doing these films and we just tend to think of any woman in Hollywood under 20 as or over 20 as being like "Eh, it's time to start playing a mom yeah and I think that this film actually does a really nice job like excuse me casting Kathy Bates was such a smart choice because she would have been thought of as an older woman in Hollywood and here she is playing opposite a much older woman Oh, yeah, I thought you were going to say much older man, because her husband's a little bit draggled. But yeah, playing opposite Nina, for sure. Yeah, and both of those characters, it turns out, like, are compelling, and uh, we get invested in them, and their stories and their lives do matter, actually, even though they are over 35. Yeah. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good film. Yeah. Recommend you see it. 
Yeah, it is the second film where um, human flesh is uh, secretly made into barbecue and served to unsuspecting strangers. Yeah, unless you want to consider Soylent Green barbecue, too. We don't really know about the procedure. Yeah, we don't know what's what's the yeah. happening. And I just discovered Three on a Meat Hook, which we might have to add a seventh film to this. Because uh, I watched it, and it was uh, a, somehow, well, somehow it's a pre-Texas Chainsaw Massacre film about barbecue and cannibalism so i don't i don't know what to think anymore let's do it bonus episode b oh my goodness all right uh thank you for listening and tuning in and what is our next film delicatessen i think yeah delicatessen i have never seen and just always know because before dvds when you'd go to a video store they would always have like a foreign language film section with like 12 movies in it it'd be like daz boot and, uh, I don't know, Life is Beautiful, maybe, and then Delicatessen. So it's one of the 12 <laughs> foreign language films that, like, mainstream VHS renters seem to rent enough to warrant its inclusion in these video stores. But we're going to finally see it. It's supposed to be kind of weird, I think a little avant-garde, maybe. Amazing. Um, yeah, when neither of us have seen it, so it'll be good. It's most about eating people. Yeah, do we know what the subtitles are? legible i don't know we hopefully we can find letterbox because i can't read subtitles so yeah filmmakers all of the many thousands of filmmakers who are listening or maybe it's a separate part of production where you put subtitles on your film hey if the color of the subtitle is the same color as the image on the screen people can't read them yeah so you got it it's always got to be letterbox i don't know if there's some artists out there who are like i will never let them put letterbox over my movie it covers the film it's like well more people are going to see your film if you use letterbox yeah be accessible we can do it we can yep lb letterbox be bonus episode